Good morning, Oregon. I'm Finn J.D. John, FJ at OffbeatOregon.com, and this is the Daily Offbeat Oregon History Podcast. It's Thursday, so this is an archive show, first published as a newspaper column and podcast episode sometime in the last 10 years. Thanks for downloading, and I hope you enjoy our show. This story was first published on November 4th of 2018, It's a rewriting and re-researching of a shorter column that was first published on March 28th of 2010. Here we go. Central Oregon is cave country. There may be more caves discovered and undiscovered within a hundred-mile radius of Bend than anywhere else in the country, ranging in size from tiny dangerous lava tubelets like Thimble Cave to mile-long subterranean vaults like Lava River Cave. To the dedicated cadre of spelunkers who enjoy exploring these underground secret spaces, finding any previously unknown cave is a dream, but there's one particular cave, one that may actually not exist, but probably does, for which cave buffs have been keeping their eyes peeled for more than a century now. This cave is usually called the Lost Crystal Cave, and lost it is indeed, so lost that no one really knows whether to file its story under geology or folklore. As usual in cases like this, we'll start with the folklore. There are two basic variants on the Lost Crystal Cave legend and dozens of sub-variants. Passed on from mouth to ear for generations, the story has changed and grown like a wind-blown juniper tree. Both variants estimate the worth of the cave as described as roughly $1 million, but it's pretty clear that they don't really know since they've been using that same number for about 50 years now. The date of the discovery ranges from 1896 to 1904. The most commonly heard version of the tale comes from Marjorie Smith, the daughter of Ben shopkeeper Nicholas Smith, who spent most of the 1910s and 1920s beating the bushes looking for it. Marjorie was about 10 years old when it was supposedly found, so her recollections carry some authority. According to Marjorie, the Crystal Cave was discovered by a group of cowboys on a cattle drive from Burns to Lapine. Near Pine Mountain, the drovers stopped for the night to make camp and cook dinner. While hunting up some wood for a cooking fire, the cowboys found a cave entrance. Looking inside with a light, they gasped and stared. They were in a room-sized cavern, and the walls and ceilings were covered with thousands and thousands of clear, diamond-like crystals. The cowboys broke some off for souvenirs and continued their voyage to Lapine and thence to Bend. When they arrived, they told anyone who would listen what they had found, offering the chunks of crystals as proof. The cowboys had places to go and things to do, so they moved on shortly after that. But Marjorie's father, Nicholas Smith, got curious after examining the crystals, so he rode out south of town to try and pick up the trail of the cattle drive. It's not difficult to trail a cattle drive, so he soon did this, and by nosing around at the places where he found the cowboys had camped, he found the cave. It was everything the cowboys had said— But the weather was looking ominous, and Nicholas didn't want to get stuck out on the range in the snowstorm that he thought was coming, or to get stuck sheltering in a cave with no food while his horse shivered outside. So he broke off a few more crystals and, noting the relevant landmarks as best he could, hurried home to Bend. That spring he returned, or tried to. Problem was, without the cattle trail to follow, he had no idea where to go, and the landmarks he'd tried to use just weren't helping him. 
Nicholas Smith spent the next 20 years fruitlessly searching for that cave. He found plenty of caves during the time, little pockets under rim rock and lava tubes of the type the bend area is peppered with, but no sign of the crystal one. The other version of the crystal cave story came from Aubrey Perry, son-in-law of Newt Cobb, one of the men who supposedly discovered it. And they were not driving cattle. They were on their way from Millican Ranch, where they'd just finished a job shearing sheep, headed for the old Seanquest Ranch near Sun River. They stopped to camp for the night. While gathering firewood, one of them found the cave entrance, and that's how the story comes into circulation in Bend. The trouble with this story is it's geographically impossible. Geologist Larry Chitwood told writer Melanie Tupper that the terrain between Millican and Sun River is just not old enough to support the growth of quartz crystals the size of the samples. So could the crystals have been something else? Ice? Opals? Maybe, but that wouldn't explain the Sheepmans having brought quartz crystals back from their journey. So what are we left with? Not much. But there is a third possibility. What if the cowboys were actually on a drive from somewhere other than Burns? What if they were coming into the Bend Lapine area from, say, Baker City or John Day, and somehow, by accident or by design, the story got altered? When the original version of this story was first published in the Redmond Spokesman back in 2010, I got a phone call from a gentleman from Pendleton. I didn't catch his name, although he did throw it. It was just as well, since I know he would not have been okay with being mentioned by name in this article. Judging by his voice, I would estimate he was 75 to 85 years old. In any case, he was mostly interested to know more details of where I thought the cave was. I told him the legends I'd unearthed. When he spoke next, he actually sounded relieved. With a chuckle, he told me the cave was nowhere near the places I was talking about. It was actually northeast of Bend, he said, about 150 miles out of town. He made it pretty clear that that was as close as he was going to get to revealing its location to me, but it was, he assured me, real. He had been there several times. Now, this was 2010, and he was calling me from a landline, meaning this was a long-distance phone call that he was paying for. He didn't come off as the kind of fellow who has nothing better to do with his time than phone up strangers long-distance to lie about crystal caves. So, perhaps everyone has been beating the bushes on the wrong side of town for all these years. That would certainly explain a hundred years of failure to find anything. But there's one other possibility as well, and to explain it, I have to tell you what happened in 2010 at the Arnold Ice Cave. In the late 1880s and early 1900s, the Arnold Ice Cave was the source for ice in the summertime for the city of Bend. Then affordable refrigeration technology came along and made it unnecessary, and after that people stopped going to the cave to cut blocks of ice as they had before. But the ice continued to grow in the cave, and by about 1940 it had filled up enough of it to block off the entrance. In 2010, the groundwater flows changed and the cave cleared enough for people to start coming in again. Members of the caver group Central Oregon Grotto eagerly came to the site and explored it, carefully documenting all the neat old artifacts they found inside. An old cigarette box, a rusty axe, the skull of what appeared to be an actual wolf. Then word leaked out to the general public, and within a few years all the artifacts had been pilfered and the walls of the cave were covered with spray-painted graffiti. In the following year, 2011, a group of bonfire partiers with a bag of spray paint cans covered Hidden Forest Cave with about 15 cans worth of graffiti, covering over Native American pictographs in the process. And these were just ordinary caves, if there is such a thing. How long do you suppose a cave lined with shimmering iridescent crystals would last? What do you think it would look like after a couple of weekends worth of souvenir hunting philistines came trampling through unsupervised? 
It's a pretty safe bet that if any of the cave buffs who remember the Arnold Ice Cave story and the Hidden Forest Cave incident were to stumble across the Crystal Cave today, they'd keep their mouths shut. They might even drag some brush over the entrance before leaving to try and keep it hidden a little longer, and really, could you blame them? The key sources in this story have included works by Melanie Tupper, Patty D. Wood, Brent McGregor, and Matt G. Skeels. Well, that's our show for today. Thanks again for listening. This podcast is part of Offbeat Oregon History, a public history resource for the state we love. What you've been listening to is one of more than 550 stories originally created and published as newspaper columns in first-run syndication between 2008 and today. You can read them all at offbeatoregon.com. Offbeat Oregon is a division of Pulplet Productions, pulp-lit.com, a boutique publishing house owned and operated by yours truly, specializing in audiobook and multimedia editions of the work of the classic pre-war pulp writers. This podcast is covered under a Creative Commons license type CC by SA 4.0, which basically means you can do anything with the content you like, so long as you A, give me credit for it, and B, whatever you make is also released under a Creative Commons license. But if you need a waiver to either A or B, hit me up, fj at offbeatoregon.com. I've never said no yet to a request for a waiver of one of those conditions. They're generally there just to prevent me from accidentally authorizing the reuse of something I don't actually control the rights to. A good example might be a photograph used by special permission of the rights holder. Our theme music is by the Atlas String Band and was written by Carmen Ficara. Listen and download more at atlasstringband.com. Questions, critiques, ideas for a future episode? Email me at fj at offbeatoregon.com. Episodes of Offbeat Oregon History are uploaded around 6 a.m. every single weekday, so the next one will be on your device and ready to go before you know it. Until then, go out and fill up the rest of the day with good stuff. Bye now. (laughs) ¶¶